Hello, everybody, and welcome to Elmtown, episode 29. Today we have Jim Carlson. You want to say hi, Jim? Hi, Murphy. How are you doing? Good to hear your voice again. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, we're going to get back to Jim right after I do the sponsors, and we're going to hear all about his projects. First, we have Day One, which is our the company I work for as our first sponsor. Beautiful journal and life archiving app, if I do say so myself, for Mac, iOS, and Android. I love Day One. I hope you'll love it too if you check it out. And big thanks to Day One for sponsoring the podcast. Next is Daily Drip, which makes keeping up to date on programming skills easy. Daily Drip will save you a ton of time by providing quality lessons and resources for you right off the bat. Some topics include Elixir, Crystal, React Native, Go, HTML, and of course, Elm. Otherwise, why would they be sponsoring the show? <laughs> Learn faster and more efficiently with Daily Drip, and you'll be a better developer. Every weekday, you'll get a short video, about five minutes or so, delivered to your inbox. You can sign up at dailydrip.com and use the coupon code ELMTOWN, all lowercase, no spaces, ELMTOWN-2018, and you will get a 14-day free trial. Also, last but not least, is our bandwidth sponsor, Ellie, for the Elm Live Editor, which is an online, in-your-browser, Elm compiler and mini IDE. It's not for big Elm projects. It's for small examples, for trying stuff out, for experimenting, for showing bugs. It's great. It's fantastic. So huge thanks to Ellie for A, existing, and for B, sponsoring the podcast. Also, a big thank you. Fergus Meeklejohn for producing this uh, episode, for editing, for uh, being an all-around advisor and an excellent person. So thank you, Fergus, for that help. Now, without further ado, back to Jim. So Jim, today we're going to talk about your main project that you've been using Elmon, which is Knode. Is that right? That's correct, Murphy. Yeah. Is, was I correct in assuming that that's kind of your main thing you're using Elm with right now? It is. I've, I've done a few small projects and started a new one with my son yesterday called uh, Vote Buddy, but uh, Knode is indeed my main project. So tell us a little bit about your background. What What is your experience? Um, how did you get into programming? When did you do that? And why Elm? You know, kind of just paint us the picture here. Okay, well, there's the long version and the short version. I'll try to make the long version, but short. <laughs> okay, sounds um, good. So I, I grew up in Idaho and went to the University of Idaho as an undergraduate. And the second summer of my undergraduate education, I had a job in the physics department doing programming, which at that time meant uh, learning to program in Fortran and doing some quantum mechanical calculations and uh and it all had to be done on punch cards at between 12 midnight and 6 a.m. So it was, a, it was an experience. Rough. And, <laughs> so, you know, I've programmed off and on ever since then. I, there were long periods where I didn't because I kind of OD'd in my Fortran job. But, uh, you know, along the way, I learned Lisp and Scheme. I learned Pascal. I never did any COBOL. Um, I eventually got – when I retired – I started doing a little programming and software development, and I learned Ruby and spent quite a bit of time with that. That sounds like a really interesting beginning, and it sounds like you covered a good chunk of like computer science history there, going from uh, Fortran in the beginning to Ruby. Is that right? That, that's right. I uh, you know I worked for a long time with compiled languages, and uh, then sort of segued into the scripting world. And, you know, when I was trying to do software development or learning it, I, I learned that, first of all, there's a huge difference between the 100-line program to do some mathematical computations and a thousands and thousands of line program that's supposed to interact with a user. And I was using mostly Rails for that. And 
it was a learning experience. Wow. So has most of your career been spent as a programmer, software engineer, or more of a more of a math person? No, uh, as a math person, I got a PhD in mathematics and worked as a research mathematician and a professor for many, many years. Uh, I was uh, I spent most of my career at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Oh, and wow. We, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a great place, not too far from where you live, Murphy. Yeah. That's really cool. So, And you were a professor in specifically mathematics or physics or what, what in, kinds in of math? In mathematics. I mean, I've had a long time interest in physics. In fact, I I was so bold as to teach a course in uh, in quantum field theory a year ago, which is mainly my own effort to learn the subject well, because if you have to teach a subject, then you are faced with public humiliation on a regular basis if you don't prepare. So. <laughs> well, so this is really interesting because programming takes time. And I assume that teaching quantum the quantum field theory, is that what you said? That's right, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm assuming that takes a lot of time as well. So if you, if you are in the middle and the thick of being a professor, how did you find time to uh, make yourself a programmer, not just a programmer, but also like an, a front-end Elm programmer? That seems like an interesting area to right. Well, that, that didn't actually happen until after I retired. My The last nine years of my career, I was the president of the Clay Mathematics Institute. And uh, after I retired, I had done a total of 16 years of administrative work in, in addition to research. And I decided it was time to do something a little bit different. So I got interested in finding a way of putting things like my own lecture notes on the web in a convenient way. And one thing led to another. I got into Ruby on Rails. I, I really had no idea what I was doing, I must say. So I, I wasted a lot of time. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, eventually I I found certain things frustrating. They're just things that were hard and tough to do. And at one point I had heard about Elixir on one of the Ruby forums I was in. And so I started using Elixir, which is a functional language on the back end. And then that I started wondering, well, maybe I should be using something functional on the front end too. And at some point I heard about Elm and I started experimenting with that. And it took me a little while to get into it. But, uh, you know, once I sort of grokked the thing, it was just absolutely fantastic. So tell me about that grokking, because I tend to think that usually the grokking uh, and for those who don't know the term, grokking kind of means learning or understanding. So it, it seems to me that a lot of time, a lot of the time spent learning that I see for new engineers is mm-hmm. the time shifting from an object-oriented mental model right. to a more mathematical, functional mental right. model. Right. How did that go for you? Well, parts of it were very easy. I mean, I, I had done a lot of work with Lisp and especially Scheme. So, you know, things like uh, reduce or... or uh, you know, those sorts of functional constructs were easy for me. What took me a little bit of time to get used to was the type system. And, you know, which really is something that gives Elm its power. I also found I had some tricky things to deal with because I had to use several libraries that exist only in JavaScript. So I had to communicate between the Elm world and the JavaScript world using ports. And that was a bit tricky. It took me a while to get started on that. But once I figured out what was going on, then things became suddenly much easier. That certainly can be a tricky topic for sure. It is. In fact, I I recently transitioned to your outside info library, which I highly recommend as a 
rational way of managing this sort of thing. Oh, excellent. Well, I'm going to link the talk in the show notes so that people can know what I'm talking about there. But I'm glad that that was able to help. That was a big help to me too when I finally right, understood right. like, oh, these are just messages going one way and another way. This There is no like task relationship here of request exactly. response. That was exactly. kind of a big deal. So so let's get started back into uh, you You found Elm. You started saying, hey, maybe this is going to be the thing that's going to work for my right. project for Knode, right? So had you already right. written Knode and Nails at that point? Well, I, I've actually done two previous versions, uh, which are still running. People are still using them. But the new version that I'm working on is going to be far better. It's, uh, it's good enough to use. I've used it for my own lecture notes already. But um, the, uh, uh, yeah, and so by the way, it's at www.kno.io, just a little advertisement there. <laughs> but, is that the uh, new version or the old version? That's the new version. Yes, that's the one that has the Elm front end and the Elixir Phoenix back end. So I've checked it out, and it's nice and complex. I mean, there's. tell us a little bit about what the feature set is and what drove the reasoning behind the feature set. Right. So there, uh, there are a couple of things. So the idea is to have an integrated document editor. So you can create documents. People can read the documents. They can do searches on them. You can do fairly complex searches, like if you type in quantum field, two different words, it will find things where quantum and field are in the uh, title. You can do keyword searches. You can do searches for title for various things. There's sort of, you can mix and match your search terms. Uh, the, I would say that the hardest part of the app is that mathematicians, physicists, computer scientists tend to write in something called LaTeX, which is a, a markup language that was invented by Donald Knuth back in the 70s, actually. Uh, he developed it to write his own books because he wasn't satisfied with the current solutions. And it's a very complex language. Uh, there's, there are great tools for editing it, for rendering it into PDF, but there are currently no really good tools for rendering it live into HTML. I mean, there's there's sort of two parts to LaTeX. There's the purely mathematical notation, the formulas and so forth. And then there's all the rest, the section numbers, the cross-references, uh, the things that give it style, itemized lists and so forth. Things like you have in Markdown or an ASCII doc. So th that's the part that uh, Knode addresses using a, a little package, which I call mini LaTeX. And the challenge there was to write a parser for LaTeX for the non-mathematical part of LaTeX, they would render that into HTML. And then, Holy cow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you wrote your own JS takes. I did. I did indeed. Uh, with some well, help, by the way. I, I would like to acknowledge the help because uh, sort of a, there, were, there were two critical moments. One was that I, I went to the ElmConf meeting in Paris last summer. And at that time, I was trying to work with a package that I developed that adds mathematical features to ASCII doc. And I persisted in that for a while, but I, you know, I needed to do a better parser for it because the ASCII doc has a parser, but it's not sort of a, it's not a good enough parser for my purposes. And I asked Evan about this and he said, well, you should take a look at Elm tools parser, which I did after the meeting. And Richard Feldman also told me a very important thing, which is about using, uh, uh, you know, there's this 
request animation frame business for the virtual DOM. That turned out to be an important part of making the JavaScript interop, interop work. Uh, but uh, anyway, yes, after, right. after working with this for a while, I realized that, hey, what I really need to be doing is not uh, adding something on top of ASCII docs so mathematicians can use it, but just making it so mathematicians and physicists and so forth can use LaTeX because that's what they're familiar with. They won't resist learning a new tool this way. And for that to work, you've got to have a parser. And so I started experimenting with Evans Elm Tools parser. And uh, it was a real learning curve, but I had fantastic help from the, uh, from the community on the Elm Slack. And in particular, I've uh, received uh, really, really fantastic help from Elias Van Peer and probably would not be at this point without his help. Well, that's fantastic. So, okay, so let me reiterate if that's okay so I can make sure, sure I'm getting this straight. So you started out with ASCII doc, but ASCII doc right. doesn't support formulas, doesn't support inline figures, right? Am I Well, it, it does uh through the medium of mathjax.js. Okay. But it's a somewhat hacky solution which is not entirely satisfactory. So you just wanted to make a way that people could write in LaTeX straight up yes. and get it exactly. rendered. And you're not doing exactly. server-side rendering. No, I'm not. I'm not. So you wrote a LaTeX parser and yeah. a LaTeX renderer as well? Well, yeah. So there are two parts to it. The, the parser reads the, the file and understands it, so to speak. It creates an abstract syntax tree that corresponds to the text. Once you have that, it's actually pretty easy to uh, write a renderer that will translate that into HTML or or even into something else. Uh, it's just a lot so of work. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work, but the, the rendering part is actually rather routine uh, as opposed to the parser, which is tricky. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there, there's de- another aspect to this, which is that uh, there is no published grammar for LaTeX, uh, so there's a lot of reverse engineering that is required. There's both engineering, there's forward and reverse engineering in this project. So there's no there's no LaTeX standard where you're like, oh, this supports LaTeX 3.x or something like that. Well, the standard is whatever the you know, LaTeX uh, processor process is oh. LaTeX. <laughs> oh, that's rough. So I, I feel some of that pain because when I started uh, work on a master's at Georgia Tech, um, mm-hmm. we had to write a lot of papers uh, for my artificial intelligence class. And I, I really right. wanted a way to make it look good you know and not right. look and not have to do the pain of hand formatting everything in words so i picked up latech and it right. is it's complex sure. it's super complex to learn because it's like you're writing a software program but using mostly prose um so right. I, I found like one tool online that someone from microsoft had had written mm-hmm. as an exercise project uh-huh. um but still i feel like i feel like there could be a much more kind of user-friendly approach and more maybe more a more elm-like approach to to writing academic papers where fewer functions maybe yeah maybe i'm wrong about that the thing is you know it's it's one of these things that once you learn the tool it becomes like a a second language to you in fact uh, mathematicians when they correspond with each other by email will often write raw latex for formulas and you know we humans read that and we understand what it says, you know, like the integral sign is backslash int. And, you know, no big deal. We understand that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, that's, that's actually really interesting. So, uh, mm-hmm. so that's, so that was your motivation behind Knode. What's, what is the that's name, right. the, the official name? What's the name? Uh, well, it's uh, it will eventually go back to noteshare.io. That's what's running now. Okay. That, uh, a K node, knowledge node, or something like that. I have a couple of domain names sitting around, and I needed something fast, so I just used one that I had. Ah, that makes sense. Okay, so this, so then tell us. It sounds like one of the biggest challenges in writing this so far was the parser, which is totally understandable. Absolutely. Parsers are nightmares. What what else did you tell us? Something another big challenge in this, and also tell us some of the experiences you had with Elm, whether they were good, frustrating, or right. bad. You know. Right, sure. So uh, another one of the challenges was making everything run really, really fast because, you know, the ideal is you're typing along and it's just rendering in real time. So that actually works fine with the ASCII doc uh, part of it. With the LaTeX part, that will work with very small pieces of text. But uh, I found a bug, or I should say actually Ilias discovered the bug when I told them that the performance is not what it ought to be. It took a couple of rounds back and forth. I was at the ElmConf in uh, St. Louis at the time. And it turned out that uh, when Elm does uh, comparisons of strings on the in the JavaScript uh, uh, runtime, it is wrapping the strings in a JavaScript object. So there's a lot of overhead involved oh, with that. Interesting. So uh, I, I needed something that would at least satisfy me in the meantime. So Ilias, I, I was looking around for a different solution, and I proposed it to Ilias, and he said, well, you know, there's a, another way of doing it, and that was basically to keep track of the paragraphs that had been changed and only reparse and re-render those. So uh-huh. I implemented that over a, the span of a few days, and it works absolutely fantastic. So, you know, once again, Ilias came to my rescue there. That's fantastic. Isn't it interesting how just there are so many different ways to approach the problem and sometimes right. we get stuck right. in our, our one way of thinking about it. But That's uh, right. It, it, you know, it reminds me very much of when I was doing mathematical research full-time, which is that you're working on a problem and what's really most important is not your technical skill, although of course that is important, but your approach to the problem. And sometimes just looking to the side and taking a different approach makes all the difference in the world. So do you think that there is in your experience kind of a way to predictably get to the point where you can look to the side and discover another way in? No, I don't think so. (laughs) I think you just have to be aware that you should be looking around. If things are not working out well, then you need to be considering alternatives instead of just trying to crash through the wall with brute force. So there's. It's, it's uh, a little bit like asking, you know, uh, how do I achieve inspiration? Well, I don't know, and I don't think anybody else <laughs> does either. Huh? I thought it had to do with putting your feet in ice water and and uh, putting tin foil on your head. Isn't it something like that? You know, that if those help, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I I read something just a bit back, and this is one of those things where like, oh, I read it. I don't know where it was, but I read it. I read right, it from, right. it was either Richard Feldman or from Evan, I believe. And they talked about uh-huh. um, how sometimes, how I think it was actually Evan's talk from when he talked about mm-hmm. fruits.com. I think that was Elm Europe. Yes. I'm going to write that down. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And he said, before you move forward with something, maybe think of three or four different ways to do it. 
and then decide right, which of right. those ways makes the most sense, which is cool. Like that sounds like an awesome exercise and one that right. most of us don't will not take the time to do. <laughs> because, no, that's very good advice. Oh, uh, that's probably actually good advice just for life in general, right? It <laughs> is. It <laughs> is. Um, so tell me a little bit then about were there things that you found limiting or frustrating in Elm while you were doing this project? Well, you know, it took me a while to get used to JSON decoders. I think that's a, a common pain point. But, you know, once you sort of understand a few of these things, it, it goes very well. And, you know, just to give a recent experience, when I started working on this Vote Buddy app yesterday, I roughed out the whole thing in an afternoon, and I never could have done that before on another project. So uh, it's somewhat like LaTeX in this respect. You know, you have to invest a little bit in learning the tool. And then once you have the tool under under your belt, you're able to do better things much faster. So what do you think it was about the language that enabled you to work so quickly yesterday? Was it getting used to the type system or the... Certainly getting used to the type system. The fact the type system indeed allows you to model your problem domain very well. I think that's a real plus of Elm. It's not just a matter of avoiding errors and so forth. Uh, It's also a matter of uh, having code that really expresses what it is that you're aiming for. Yeah, very interesting. So it's the power of of the data and the logic modeling that makes a huge difference. I would agree with that. Now, another uh, another thing that I would say is very refreshing in Elm is the ability to fearlessly refactor. I've had to do this many, many times in the Knode project. And, you know, there's JavaScript code and Ruby code that I simply will not touch. I mean, I have the fear that if I even think about it, it might break. But with Elm, <laughs> I can go in and just completely trash stuff and come out an hour later or two hours later and everything's working. So it, it's wonderful. You know, what's funny about that is people, when I'm, when I'm talking to them about Elm, they'll say like, okay, but what selling points does it have besides the refactoring, yeah. like the easy refactoring? I know that's a thing, but like, mm-hmm. besides that, what are its selling points? And I'm like, you know, that I'm not sure you should say besides that, because that's kind right. of like the most important thing right. <laughs> you can yeah, do as a programmer. I, I've talked to people about that. I, also, I, I gave a talk uh, at my son's high school a couple of months ago, and I, I did mention that. <laughs> it didn't mean anything to them, of course. The thing is, you, you have to have experienced the pain of refactoring and the need for it before you can really understand that. So that's something that speaks to software developers who have had a certain amount of experience under their belt. If you're just beginning, it probably means nothing to you. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I think that one neat thing about the type system and about the the importance of refactoring, et cetera, in Elm is that it kind of recognizes and accepts the fact that we are going to be constantly making mistakes. Right. That's like, that's right. not something that we can get rid of. So right. we say, let's design a language that's great at recovering from mistakes rather than right. necessarily a language that's great at being fast and right the first time. Right. Because we just don't, <laughs> we just don't do that. Exactly. There, there's also the whole issue of the longevity of code because uh, most projects are not simply done and that's the end of it. Their features are added, you know, bugs are fixed, but also features are added and that creates its own problems. And if code is to exist over the long term and to be easily managed over the long term, you do have to refactor. So it, you have to have the right tools to be able to do that. Well, and, I, and I know that there are times even when prototypes are written with the intention of being thrown away, but end up 
not being thrown away because people say, well, we've got something, we got to use it now. <laughs> and yeah, so it's what we have, <laughs> which can be horrible if you've written the prototype right. in a thing. Hard right. to you should build a project to throw away before you build a real project. But most of us don't have that luxury. That makes sense, I think. I, and I think that probably uh, we start with the intention of doing that and end up in the the constraints of not actually being able to throw it away, uh, but exactly. having to move on. Yeah. An ideal world would let us experiment, discard, and restart, but right. <laughs> we don't live in it. So, no, we don't live uh, in that world. It sounds like you've been to a number of ElmConfs. Uh, is this just two that you've been to, or have you been to more? Uh, let's see. It's just two, the one in Paris and the one in St. Louis. I'm looking forward to going to the Paris meeting, and I'll go to ElmConf in St. Louis again uh, in the fall. So, so what, what do you find valuable about those conferences? What have been the best takeaways for you? Well, there's always some random piece of information that you pick up. I mean, I, again, liken it to my life as a mathematician. Some random thing that I was not expecting is what really makes the difference. And, you know, one of those moments at ElmConf in Paris was hearing uh, uh, Matt Griffiths talk about uh, style element, Elm style elements. And I've been using it, uh, I'm using it both in VoteBuddy and also in Knode. And it is just wonderful. I mean, I cannot tell you how much time I've wasted in my life with CSS. And uh, <laughs> so I give my full endorsement to that project. Uh, so let's, uh, that's super cool. Let's get to picks and uh, yes. see what do you, what do you have to recommend to people? Well, I would like to recommend something that doesn't yet exist in Elm, but I think might uh, be very valuable for Elm programmers. And that is something along the lines of hex docs. Uh, in Elixir, they have really a wonderful, wonderful documentation system. I was using it yesterday when I was working on VoteBuddy because I hadn't set up a new uh, Elixir Phoenix server for a while. It was a bit rusty. But with those docs, I was able to move through that phase of the project very quickly. So it's it's a great documentation system, and I think it would help people who are getting started in Elm. So you're picking Elm's version of hex docs that we hope will exist in the future when somebody exactly. writes it. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Any other picks? Well, I think I would like to recommend Style Elements. It's a fantastic package for doing the layout and the visual part of an L map. Excellent. And I know that there are major changes coming in the next version um, that Matt is working on there too. So right. the current edition has some interesting ideas and the next version has radically changed but improved upon those ideas too. So that's Yes, and, and let's have a rah-rah for semantic versioning because that's keeping a lot of us out of trouble. <laughs> Definitely. Big, big shout out for that. Great. Anything else, Jim? I think that's it. Okay. Well, I'm going to pick... I'm going to do like this interesting pick that's not a raving pick, but like a like an enthusiastic, this is pretty neat pick. But uh, over the past week or two, I've been writing some new server-side code for Firebase functions. So not to host ourselves, but Firebase has these new things that are in beta, which are essentially just AWS Lambda functions, but on Firebase. Um, where you write basically an Express app, uh, Express from Node. You write a Node.js app, essentially, and you can just send it up to Firebase, and they take care of all the hosting for you and the scaling, et cetera, et cetera, which is pretty neat. And so I've actually been writing those in ReasonML, uh, which is a very neat experience. It's the, it's the best experience I've ever had writing server-side JavaScript, that's for sure. Um, 
And so that it has been a challenge to figure out how to ship those up to the Firebase functions properly because I've had to do some bundling and stuff. So I'm also going to pick something that doesn't exist yet, which is going to be the show that Jared Forsyth and I record on on Reason Town about using Reason on Firebase functions. And so I'm going to go ahead and pick that for the future. So just keep your eyes open for it. It probably won't be in the show notes because it's going to happen later, but uh, or I hope it will at least. I've had some pretty neat, interesting experiences getting that working, and that's been fun. So that's the only thing I'm going to pick is ReasonML on a server and also using a function, you know, a serverless quote unquote service so that you don't have to actually do the maintenance of the server yourself. That's a, it's a pretty neat combo there. And last but not least, I'm going to not do this as a pick anymore. I'm just going to throw it in at the end of the show always. But we have a Patreon uh, where we are accepting donations to support the show. So if you're interested, go ahead and follow that link there. So thank you so much to everyone who's been listening. Huge thanks to Jim for coming on and taking the time to tell us some, some stuff about Keynote, but especially just about your story, Jim. I really, really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Murphy. And uh, any last words for the people before we sign off? Nope. Um, keep coding in Elm. <laughs> okay. You heard it. People of Elmtown, keep coding in Elm. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>